Okay, guys, we are back to our uh, sort of mini uh, mini series here. On uh, we finished up our study of Titus. We began last week to look at this, the doctrine of perspicuity of Scripture, uh, and, and and we talked about various just the importance of the doctrine of Scripture in the day in which which we're living. There's been so many different attacks against Scripture in 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 recent years. Attacks on uh, biblical inerrancy, attacks on uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, with with the uh, s- some of the things coming out of the charismatic movement, even with the uh, the emphasis uh, in, in the church on on, on Christian psychology or, or integrating secular psychology with uh, with with biblical counsel and truth, uh, an attack on the relevancy of Scripture with the seeker movement and some of the things going on in in uh, in the church. And then this, uh, in recent days, it's been against an attack against the perspicuity of Scripture, especially among younger uh, Christians or evangelicals questioning whether or not uh, the Word of God is clear enough to justify certainty or dogmatism on points of doctrine. In other words, they're questioning, do we have the right to be certain about things that we believe? Uh, perspicuity, we, we just said, is a, is a, is a fancy word, uh, but I think you ought to become familiar with it. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of terms in Scripture. Uh, perspicuity is not there, but it's sort of like Trinity. Just because it's not there doesn't mean that the doctrine's not there and, that the, and the terms are not important. Because if you go back and you read things, and especially in church history, about these doctrines, you're going to find those terms. So it's good to be familiar uh, with those things. Uh, I mean, there's even a movement today to just even take biblical terms and just drop the biblical terms uh, and and use terms that we're more familiar with. I just think that we need to force ourselves to use biblical terminology because I think it's just one step removed. Uh, things begin to to get to seemingly to get watered down. So it's just a it's just a, a word. It comes from a Latin word which means to see through. So it's it's speaking about. Uh, the quality, the, the character of Scripture, the character of the Bible, the fact that the Bible is clear, that the Bible is lucid, that it's intelligible, as opposed to being confusing or opposed to being dim uh, or, or hard, to, hard to understand or even some would say impossible, again, with certainty to understand what the Bible says. So uh, this, this doctrine is... Uh, it's, 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 it's the idea that the central message of the Bible is clear, that it's understandable, that the Bible itself can be properly interpreted in, in a normal, literal sense, uh, and that because the Scripture is clear, all men are fully accountable to, to its message. So we mentioned not everybody's in agreement with that. Uh, not everybody agrees in perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture, uh, we have those that are outside the pale of, of evangelicalism and Christianity that certainly attack the clarity of Scripture, but we even have some within uh, or among professing evangelicals that seem to deny this or to, or to just resist it, to push back against this particular doctrine. Uh, we looked at some common objections to perspicuity. We looked at, uh, we looked at Catholicism, uh, pluralism, and and mysticism; those were just three examples that we gave. That of course, the, gave of course the, the, the Catholic Church uh, has a view that the Scripture needs the authoritative interpretation of, of the Church. Uh, the Catholic Church believes that that the disputes and, and the discords that we have regarding Scripture are never going to be resolved unless people give in to the authority of the Church. So basically, the Church becomes the unifying force that solves our our problems, our theological problems, our practical living problems. Say we're, we're never going to resolve these issues unless you yield uh, personally to the authority of the church and let the church decide these things. And so in, in that sense, script, Scripture means for them what the church says that it means. Uh, we, we looked at pluralism, which questions the very idea that any of us has sufficient grounds to know whether an interpretation is right or wrong. Uh, and along with that, believe that a person who claims to know what Scripture teaches on a particular subject is arrogant. So in their minds, if you say, if you claim that you believe something or that you know something because Scripture says it, that's supposedly an arrogant thing to say. That's, that's not a humble approach to Scripture. 
Um, and that's because plural, pluralism by, by, by nature is just saying we're accepting all of these. We're, you know, you, there ought to be things about every view that are uh, redeemable or that, or that are good. And so you don't want to close yourself off to any one thing. You, just, you want to say, let's look at all of it and let's just take the good parts, to, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones kind of thing. So it's just sort of wide open. So to, to, so to say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to read that. I mean, it's aggravating to people sometimes that are coming from this approach to say, well, I got this book I want you to read. You say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to read that book. <laughs> I got so many things, I got to stack <laughs> this high of good books that I can't get to and want to read. I, I just don't want to invest my time and energy into that. And they get upset because in their minds, you ought to be open-minded and be in, taking everything in and not be discriminating in that. And I'm not saying it's not appropriate at times to say, hey, I want to know more about that view, or I want to know where that person's coming from, or, you know, we do these things. We might have a, uh, a, a, a neighbor that's, that's, uh, that's Muslim. We might say, I want to read some things about what they believe, but it's for the purpose of, of evangelizing, right? It's, it's for trying to understand where they're coming from so that we can present the truth, the gospel to them. But sometimes people are aggravated when they suggest you read something and you, you just open the, the front cover and just read the chapter names and you're like, I don't know if I want to waste my time with this. And, and, they're, and they're saying, no, there's, there's some good things in there. So that's, you know, there's a lot of, lot of trickle down, <coughs> some, some bad effects, bad uh, results that come from that, that sort of viewpoint. Uh, then we looked at mysticism. Uh, mystics think that God is so transcendent that he can't be talked about meaningfully with words. Uh, and, and the Christian life is presented as something that is utterly mysterious. So we said, you know, one of the things we hear from, pe- from, from people that are sort of caught up in this mentality or this approach is that they're, they're saying things like, you just can't put God in a box. And that sounds spiritual. That sounds, it sounds humble to say that. But what they're getting at is that, they're, they're saying that in relation to this. So they're saying, you can't put God in a box. And so Scripture put, they're saying, Scripture puts God in a box. And I don't want to worship a God like that. I, God is the ocean, you know. And these are just little, these are just like, a, it's just a handful of, of pebbles of sand. But this is not the totality of who God is. And we'd say, well, this doesn't tell us everything we want to know about God. I mean, in fact, it doesn't tell us everything about everything. And there's lots of things the Bible doesn't teach us. But God is the one who decided to reveal himself through this book. So that's his prerogative. That was his, that, that was his method, his means. So who are we to say, we say this, this, is, this is some sort of a, a, a half-hearted attempt, a, a fallible attempt to describe this big God. No, this is a perfect description, uh, an infallible, a trustworthy, and in, in a, in a, in a, a revelation that is, that is without error. And we're going to come back to some of these things next Next week, but you, you hear those kinds of statements. Uh, mystics mystics believe that truth cannot be captured in words or propositions. They think, at the very least, that Christians should be radically uncertain about their interpretations of Scripture, and at the most, they believe that Scripture itself is nothing more than a feeble attempt to describe the mysteries of faith using the imperfections of human language. In fact, they would say that it's it's even. It's harmful or even dangerous for Christians to be certain about issues such as life and death, eternal punishment, hell, sovereignty, homosexuality, really any, any, any teaching that would exclude other people, whether that's people outside the church or even sometimes that would exclude people you know, within uh, certain uh, groups, even denominational differences, those kinds of things. Who, who, would we, who are we to say this is what the Scripture teaches on a particular uh, topic? And again, all, all this of, is in keeping with the one essential demand of postmodernism that no one think that he or she knows any objective truth. So we went from that. We, start, we began to look at what the Bible says about its own, its own clarity, what the Bible says about its own Clarity. I just wanted to, you know, just show you that all the way back into the Old Testament, the Bible is is presenting itself as something that is clear and understandable. Um, we even talked, and we'll come back to this again later. But uh, there are some that even that have this view that the Old Testament is not clear. 
that the Old Testament is extremely fuzzy, ex- extremely mysterious and unclear, and that you cannot uh, discern the meaning of an Old Testament text without the New Testament. And so they start at the New Testament and they work backwards with this assumption the Old Testament is not clear. And, and what we believe is that the, the, all the scriptures are clear and that the scriptures were given to us progressively in, in history. We call it progressive revelation. But at any given point, the people of God understood what God was saying, that, 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 that they understood the message. They understood what God was saying about who he was and what he expected and what he thought about man. And all of those types of things. So we just sort of were giving examples of that through the Old Testament and working our way up through, through the, the, uh, the New Covenant, New, New Testament. So we went, back, we went back to the Pentateuch. We looked at Deuteronomy, uh, this, these first 30 chapters, uh, this, this long covenant renewal ceremony just before the people go into the promised land, uh, before Joshua leads the people in. Moses is imploring the people to choose life rather than death by keeping the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And then just before he gives this exhortation, this sort of final exhortation for people to choose life, he reassures the people in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14, that God's word is not beyond them. Here's what he says, verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it, get it for us? And to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, "Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make it make us hear it, that we may observe it?" But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. And so, what what Moses does before the congregation of Israel is he he reassures the people that the word of God can be understood and obeyed. That's basically what he's saying. He's saying, I've, I've given you, I've, I have gone through all of these things that God has revealed, that he said about what he expects of you when you go into the land, and this is not far away. This is not something that's confusing. It's not something that's dim. It's something that's right here in front of you. So God's word is not inaccessible, and God's word is not cryptic. It's not something that's, that's confusing. Now, Moses would say this in, in Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. So we, we understand there are secret things. There are things that God has chosen to not reveal to us. We understand that. But then the very next phrase says this, But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So he's just saying, again, the, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we, that, that, that we want to know. But what God has revealed to us, these things belong to us, and we, we understand them. And, and the goal of God revealing himself to us is that we would follow him. Well, how can we follow him if we don't know where we're supposed to be going and what the Lord expects? So the word of God is near, not far. Moses says it's right in front of you, ready to be understood and obeyed. Then we jumped over to the Psalms. Uh, what do the Psalms say about the Word of God? Uh, of course, we know that God is light, that God is pure. We would expect that His Word be clear and bright. And that's exactly what the Psalms tell us. Psalm 19, verse 7 uh, and verse 8 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Gives gives us understanding, spiritual understanding, restores our very hearts. It, it literally transforms, it, it converts, it, it turns our soul, it turns the very core of the heart of man around. That's the power of the Word of God, as he says there in verse 7. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, clear and bright. Psalm 119, verse 130, the unfolding of your words give gives light, gives understanding to the simple. We looked at the, the period in Israel's history of the divided kingdom. Uh, when the book of the law was rediscovered in Josiah's day, the people, the people read it, they understood it. They knew, they knew what they had to do in response. And so we, we looked at 2 Kings chapter 22, and, and, and we jumped in sort of in verse 10 where 
Shaphan the scribe tells the king that Hilkiah the priest had given him this book of the law, and he begins to read it in the presence of Josiah the king. And it says in verse 11 that when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. I'm saying, what was it? I mean, it was it confusing? <laughs> I mean, would you would you would you repent and and would you would you rip your clothes if you didn't know what the text meant? But what we find out is that he understood exactly what it meant, and and that was the very thing that grieved him. In fact, he says to him, when that's read, Josiah tells him to go to go before the Lord and to inquire before the Lord for Josiah as well as for the people in all of Judah because he realizes, and he says this, that the great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because he understood that what God expected of them and the way that Judah had behaved, those were not <laughs> consistent, that they had violated these things. And so he understands the, Lord, the Lord's wrath burns against us because, he says, quote, our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Well, how would that possibly be if the people didn't understand what the word of God meant and what God expected of them? So the meaning of the text was not lost on them even after the passage of many years. I mean, they heard it and it was immediate. They, they understood exactly what the Lord had said and required. Think about the, old, the, the prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, the, 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 their very presence of the prophets and their ministry only makes sense if the, if the prophets had a right to press home the points of the law that the people should have known and followed but were ignoring. I mean, their very ministry doesn't make any sense to go and to, to say, this is what's happening or this is what's going to happen if you don't turn, return back to the Lord the very foundation of their ministry rests upon the fact that the people should have understood and should have known what the, the, the way that they should be living. In fact, the whole Old Testament assumes that the holy words and holy texts are adequate vehicles for transmission of God's intentions and His desires. We went to the time of the exile, uh, the, the book of Nehemiah and what that tells us about Ezra and the priests. That uh, It says in Nehemiah 8, 7 that, that Ezra the scribe stood at this wooden podium which they had made for this particular purpose, that he had six, six, on, six men on his right hand, seven on his left hand, and Ezra, verse 5, he opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands, and then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then the Levites, verse 7, it says that they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So these men weren't just giving their own private, their personal interpretations. They were giving the meaning of Scripture. They were explaining the, the meaning of the text of the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? What about Jesus? And this is kind of where we, we left off. Uh, did Jesus believe that the Old Testament texts were clear? Did he believe the Old Testament scriptures were clear? Numerous times, Jesus appealed to the text or to a text from the Old Testament, thinking that such an appeal settled the matter. So he would make appeals to the Old Testament, and when he would make these appeals, it was like end of discussion. <laughs> the assumption meaning you should have understood this. You, 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 I shouldn't have to point this out. This is plain. This is clear. So Jesus not only believed that the Old Testament was authoritative, but that the Old, the Old Testament had a fixed meaning that people should have been able to recognize. Uh, on, on other occasions, Jesus reprimanded the Jewish establishment for not conforming to the Word of God. This is in uh, Matthew 9, uh, verse 10. It says, It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, 
but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus suggested that they should have understood uh, they should have understood how this verse was a, is, a, is a quotation out of Hosea. Jesus is suggesting that they should have understood how that verse from Hosea applied to this, quote, scandal of him eating with tax collectors and sinners. But, but they're not, they're not, they're, 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 mis, they're trying to figure out why is Jesus, why is he doing this? And he just says, go read the Old Testament. <laughs> it's clear in the Old Testament. Go read Hosea. You know, in order, you should be, you should be making these connections. Now, what's interesting to me is that, and we'll come back to this in just a little bit, these are unbelievers. I mean, from what we can tell, that many of these people that Jesus is addressing are unbelievers, and yet he's telling unbelievers, you should have known. You should have known. So that, what that tells us is that there is a level of meaning that is accessible to an unbeliever. And we'll talk about the difference between what an unbeliever can know and is accountable for versus maybe the understanding that a, that a true believer would have with the, the, uh, the Spirit of God indwelling them. Another example, Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, and I mean Jesus said this many times, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And Jesus basically takes two passages out of the Old Testament, pulls them together. The, the issue here is, I think one of the main issues, this particular part where he says, my, my, house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That, that's a quote from Isaiah 56 verse 7. But here's what Isaiah 56 verse 7 says. That my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Implication. Where is this event happening? Where, where is all this commerce taking place on the Temple Mount? It's taking place in the court of the Gentiles. This was the designated place for the Gentiles to come. They couldn't, they could, there, were, there, was, there were lines that were drawn and they weren't allowed to go any further than this. And yet the very place that God had determined, this is where the nations, this is where the Gentiles come to worship. This was a place that they had turned into a place of commerce. And so what does Jesus say? He's saying, I can't believe you guys don't get this. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what it was intended for, and yet you guys have turned it into something else. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around Jesus, and when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when, they had, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. That's sort of in the New American Standard, that's verses 3 and 4 sort of in parentheses. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, he's just grabbing all these Old Testament passages. I mean, this is his case. Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, or that is to say given to God, set aside for God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Six times Jesus asked, have you not read? Have you not read? Suggesting that if his opponents had known the scriptures better, they would not be making the mistakes they were making. 
So clearly, Jesus approached God's written revelation. Again, at this point, it's just the Old Testament. So Jesus is viewing the Old Testament text as something that could be known and understood. What about the apostles? Well, the apostles followed in Jesus' steps. We see them throughout the New Testament quoting from the Scriptures, reasoning from the Scriptures, alluding to the Scriptures, finding fulfillment of the Scriptures, all with the assumption that these Old Testament texts had a correct meaning and that they were in possession of it. So, you know, it's like if... if and, we'll, and again, we'll, clear, we'll even spell this out even more next, next week, but, I mean... You know, if my wife says something to me and, and I say, I'm, so, I'm sorry, uh, what do you mean? She doesn't say, which one of the ten meanings are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, well, the meaning. You know, why did you say that? And she tells me what she meant by it, right? I mean, we, don't, we struggle to communicate. But it's not like there's ten meanings. I mean, she just clarifies. She says, this is what I mean by that. And, and the apostles treated the Old Testament this way. They treated the, 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 the scriptures this way, that there was a fixed meaning and that they had it, that they, they understood it, and that they could claim with certainty this is what God meant when he said these things. Once again, we said this back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 last week, but even a child can understand Scripture's message, and Scripture explains salvation. 2 Timothy 3, what did Paul tell Timothy? He says, you, however, in verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, this t- classic text we go to to, to, to uh, uh, discuss or to, to lay out the doctrine of inspiration. All Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Peter 1.19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp, shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And we'll look in more detail at this uh, Second Peter 1 passage. So the scriptures are clear. We can interpret them. They can be understood. We can have certainty about what we believe. Scripture describes itself as that which gives light, as that which is profitable, as that which explains salvation, as that which addresses common people, as that which can be understood by children, and is something that should be used to test the validity of religious ideas. In other words, we test things based upon what Scripture says. So we, in order to do that, we have to know what Scripture means. Say, this is what Scripture means, and this is what this person is saying, or this is what that pastor's preaching, or this is what that book is claiming, and we take that and we test that against Scripture. So, Scripture is clear. It is the truth that sets men free, as Jesus said in John 8. Now, just to sort of clarify what we mean by clarity, <laughs> we, I thought we would just lay out some... What are we, what are we not saying when we use this term or we talk about the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, and what are we saying? Just sort of make a list of some things. Uh, hopefully this will, this will help uh, sort of because you may have, you know, some different questions in your mind about, you know, how clear. If the Bible is so clear, how come I read things and they're like, I don't, what is that? I don't understand that. And you might be, have been a Christian for 30 years. Right, and you might know a lot about the scriptures, and you read something, and it doesn't seem like the meaning's just jumping off the page. So, what what are we saying about about this particular doctrine? Hopefully, this will sort of tighten the screws down a little bit and refine what we're what we're talking about. So, what we are not saying about perspicuity, we're not saying that the scriptures are so clear that they do not need any interpretation. Okay, we definitely need to interpret the scriptures. Okay, it's not as if just just sort of you read it and it's just face value. I mean, you just see it. Jesus went to Capernaum. What does that mean? Jesus went to Capernaum. Yeah, it's a, you know, there's there certain things. It's like, it just said, we don't, we don't like assume there's something behind that. <laughs> we just say that's, that's what it is. And yet we know that every line, every 
sentence, every paragraph we read in Scripture, it, it doesn't strike us that way, right? So we do need to interpret Scriptures. We, we just don't believe that, that some kind of official interpretation of Scripture by the church or, or, or anyone else stands above or beyond what is accessible to the typical Christian. So we, we interpret Scripture. That's what we'll come back to primarily next time is interpretation. How, how do we actually approach the Scriptures? How do we get to this meaning? How can we have this level of certainty about what we believe? Uh, We're also not saying that a clear understanding of Scripture comes via the Holy Spirit apart from diligent study on our part. Okay? Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Ezra himself, the, the Bible describes Ezra this way. It says, Ezra had set his heart. Okay? Love that phrase. I love that phrase. Set his heart. The, the, the New Testament says it in ways like this. Set your mind on things above. You know, uh, dwell on these things. In other words, there's this idea in Scripture that your heart and mind will wander <laughs> away from truth. You have to intentionally aim your mind and your heart at the, at the Word of God and on the things of God. So what does Ezra do? Well, he sets his heart. He fixes his heart. Daniel set his heart and his mind not to defile himself. Ezra, in this verse, sets his heart to study the law of God and to practice it. I mean, what, what a great ambition, right? What a great focus in life. I'm going to set my heart on studying the law of God and practicing it so that, and this is the last phrase of that verse, to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. I mean, isn't that, what, isn't that discipleship? Right? We set our heart to study the Word of God so that we can practice the Word of God so that we can then do what? Teach the Word of God. That's all. Everyone in here should be doing that. Studying, practicing, teaching. You say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching. I don't, I don't, I'd be, it'd, be, I would, it'd frighten me to death to stand up in front. That's okay. Do you have a family? You know? hey, grab someone. Gra- disciple someone. Who are you discipling? That's always a good question. Who are you discipling? Who are, you tra- who are you teaching the things that you've learned? You say, well, I've only been a Christian for a year. Yeah? <laughs> Make disciples. Make disciples. Find, find another new believer. Do a study together. But, but teach these things. <coughs> what, what a great goal, Ezra, to do this. Set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And so we're not saying that this understanding of Scripture or that the meaning of Scripture just comes to us via some supernatural work of the Spirit of God apart from diligent study. Right? I mean, our, our pastor, believe it or not, he did not wait around until 10 o'clock last night, <laughs> fix a cup of coffee and pray and say, Lord, give me a message. Just, I mean, a zinger too. Give me, give me, give me one in the morning that I mean is just going to just convict hearts and change hearts and just impact people's lives. No, our pastor spent hours this week, probably slept very little. Darby probably didn't sleep a lot last night. Uh, David Kent probably didn't sleep a lot last night. A lot of our Bible study teachers and Pastor, Pastor Kohler probably didn't get a lot of rest. They were probably up early this morning. Why? Because they're not expecting God to do that in their life and heart apart from diligent study. Got a comment? First of all, I, I think it's when you come to a church like this that's dedicated itself to preaching Scripture verse by verse, at least the thing that comes out to me is how incredibly clear Scripture becomes. You know, if you will just dedicate to just studying it in its context, the historical, and just reading it with all the various tools that we have at our disposal, I can just make the comment, I guess. Yeah, sure. incredibly clear the Old Testament is and the New Testament. It doesn't mean there aren't passages that we don't understand, but it really just comes down to the fact of whether or not you want to dedicate yourself to study. Sure, and I mean, the thing that, the convicting part is that we have more of these tools and resources available to us today and yet this expectation that people would hear the word and practice it this was in a day and age when they didn't have bibles on their shelves folks i mean they didn't have like a bible just sitting there they could pick up and sit in a recliner with a cup of coffee and 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 read the psalms okay their their accessibility to the scriptures were very limited and so when they heard the scriptures they were expected to hear them orally and to make these connections, and to take what they had heard, and to go away, and to think about it, and to put the pieces together, and to study it from what they were hearing, not sitting down with their iPad. Hello, right? Not sitting with their iPad and their Logos or BibleWorks software breaking it down. We're talking about hearing the Word and being so attentive to the Word to hear it to remember it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to go home and to study it, to practice it, to teach it. 
And then we have all these things, all these little shortcuts, and we say we can't understand it. It's so hard. It's so difficult. And how can we ever know Scripture with certainty? And I'm saying these people, I mean, people were burned at the stake for, the, for these things. There are convictions that this is what the Word of God says. And some of those people didn't have a Bible. So they couldn't go because right here, they had, they had limited uh, interface with, with that. But what they did hear and what they did know and study, they were convinced of to the degree that they would die for it. All right. We're also not saying that everything in the Bible is equally clear. Equally clear that, that all of Scripture is equally clear as to its precise meaning. And, and different Protestant confessions reflect this, this point. For instance, Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646, uh, in, this, in the chapter 1 there on Scripture, says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a, in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Uh, Second London, uh, sort of following that, 1689, the Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, in their section on, on, on bibliology, says something similar. It says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, observed for salvation, again, are so clear, they would use this phrase, so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but unlearned in due use of ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. And then they list 2 Peter 3, Psalm, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, those passages. So there's, we're just saying there's a difference between clarity and simplicity. Scripture is clear. It's not mystical and it's not hidden. But in certain passages, it often takes greater work to understand what the biblical authors meant. Okay? We're just simply agreeing with Peter's statement. When Peter, commenting on Paul's writings, Peter admits this in 2 Peter 3.16... He's speaking of Paul's writings, in which are some things hard to understand. Okay, so Peter is seeing what Paul is writing and teaching, and he's saying, these things are difficult. These things are difficult. Difficult, hard to understand, which, he says, the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. We are also not saying that the meaning of every verse in the Bible will be patently obvious to everyone. Not saying that. That every verse of the Bible will be patently patently obvious to everyone. Uh, We certainly acknowledge the fact that people are not, in a sense, equally able to understand all things in the Bible, and that can be for a variety of reasons. I mean, it could be just, it could be varying. Uh, again, levels or degrees of, of education. It could be access, mental capacity, ways of thinking. There's, there's different, different things that would, would impact that. Uh, we're not saying that we cannot gain biblical insight from others or that we should not seek this kind of help. Is that next? Yeah. Uh, so we look at, like, for instance, Acts chapter 8 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and, and Philip, you know, uh, Philip goes up to, he, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch, reading Isaiah the prophet, and he says to him, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And so he invites Philip to come up and to sit with him, and he goes to this Old Testament passage, and in verse 35 it says, Philip opens his mouth and begins from this scripture preaching Jesus to him. So we're not saying that the interpretation or the exposition or explanation by a Bible teacher are never necessary. In fact, the New Testament speaks of the gift of teaching, right? So we're not saying you don't need teachers. You don't need people to teach you the Word of God because the Bible speaks of that gift in the church. It also speaks of the office of teaching pastors in Ephesians. In fact, one of the qualifications, we saw this in, in, in Titus and over in First Timothy 3 when we were looking at our uh, doing our study through Titus, one of the qualifications of a pastor or overseer or elder in the church, a shepherd in the church, is that he would be able to do what? They would be able to teach, right? They'd be able to teach. He would be clinging to the Word of God. He would be clinging to, exhorting with sound doctrine, refuting those who contradict sound doctrine. That's, 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 he's supposed to do that. That, that is a gift, gift to the church. 
Uh, even the change from one culture to another or from one language to another mandates teachers. Uh, Bernard Ram, in his uh, book on Protestant biblical interpretation, says this, Words and sentences occur in the context of culture. Their meaning depends in a large part to these, these contexts in which they occur, and without that context, it is either difficult or impossible to know the meaning of the words or sentences. It is therefore no great thing nor something out of the ordinary that we should have words, concepts, and sentences that puzzle us in Holy Scripture. Just saying, we're, we've got to do... We've got some of these things we come across in Scripture are going to require time and diligent study. And it's okay to go to someone and say, have you ever studied this before? Do you have any resources on this? What do you think about this passage? It's, again, it's not, it's just not a free-for-all. This is not the typical you know, 21st century small group in a church where it's just a pool of ignorance, where you just get a bunch of people together in the church and say, we have a small group. What are we doing in the small group? Well, I got a question. I want to ask you guys a question. The question is, and they throw this question out there, and then they just say, what do you guys think? And everybody just goes around and gives their, their interpretation of what they think that verse means, and then nobody speaks with authority in that group. It's as if everybody's view counts, and so everybody just gives their little tidbit of information about that topic. You know, what do you guys think about this issue? Everybody says what they think, and then we close in prayer. And if you're the first-time visitor to the group, what, do you, what impression do you get? Yeah, get out of town. I mean, get, get, run, run, right? Uh, it, it's just like, it's just, it's just take all of these ignorant things that we think, and, and let's just, just, just cast them all in together and just make this just, just big stew of a bunch of error. And somebody walks into that group and they think, so where's the authority in that church? The authority is personal opinion in that church not the scriptures. So, so we, we, we're not, teachers are a blessing. Pastors, preachers are a blessing. People that are dis- discipling others, they're a blessing. They're a part of this process. We're not saying by this doctrine of clarity that those are not needful and helpful. We're also not saying that we would never change our minds about one of our beliefs or convictions. Hello, <laughs> can we just say, by, the, by our own experience, I mean, that's, we, don't, we don't need to, de, to, to debate this, right? We all have done this in one way or another, but that's not because the Scriptures are unclear. That is due to our lack of diligence. It's due to our shoddy work, honestly, sometimes in the, in the Scriptures. In many cases, it's our pride uh, and, and many, many other problems, and for that very same reason, we're not saying that the doctor, doctrine of perspicuity will inevitably lead all believers to the same conclusions about the meaning of Scripture, right? I mean, we're not, not a single part, two people in this church will agree on everything, right? And, and again, that because of these things, because of the things that are in our lives, that, that is stage stage of spiritual maturity, that is what, who we have been influenced by and sat under. Again, we have one clear authoritative word. We're just acknowledging the fact that we are still dealing with sin in our own hearts and lives, right? There's a limitation in our own hearts and lives. But that's not, that does not have anything to do with the fact that the word of God is, 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 is clear or not clear. We're not speaking about the character of Scripture when we say that. We're just admitting a reality that... That, that we, that believers are going to have different conclusions about some things in Scripture. Just because that's true, we don't need to cave on the clarity of Scripture. And to say, well, if we disagree about something, then clearly the Scriptures aren't clear. No, clearly we have a problem. The problem is not God's Word. The problem is, is us. Okay? So what are we saying? What are we saying? We are saying that Scripture is clear enough for the simplest person to live by. We are saying that the scriptures are clear enough for the simplest person to live by. Again, we've already mentioned Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology on this comments. Here, here the simple person, in that, in that Psalm 119, verse 130, the simple person is not merely one who lacks in intellectual ability, but one who lacks sound judgment, who is prone to making mistakes, and who is easily led astray. God's word is so understandable, so clear, that even this kind of person is made wise by it. Okay. We're also saying that Scripture is deep enough for readers of the highest intellectual ability. I love this. R.A. Torrey wrote this in The Divine Origin of the Bible. The Bible is unfathomable. Unfathom- Whatever man has produced, man can exhaust. 
but no man, no generation of men, not all the tens of thousands of men together that have devoted their best abilities and the best years of their lives to study to the study of this book have been able to exhaust this book. Men of the best minds that the world has ever known, men of widest culture, men of rarest intellectual grasp, men of keenest insight and profoundest ability have dug into the book for years and years, and the more they dig, the deeper they saw the depth still below them to be, and the richer the golden ore. Philip Spinner said this in his message titled, The Necessity and Useful Reading of Holy Scripture. It says, Scripture is water in which a lamb can touch bottom and walk on it, but an elephant must swim. A lamb can touch bottom and walk on it, but an elephant must swim. This we can understand in the following sense. A simple person can discover his need in it and come to it even though he can only wade. On the other hand, the person who has greater understanding will meet with so many difficulties in the text that he must swim through them with great struggle. That is, he must turn all his powers toward overcoming those difficulties. That's Scripture, right? So, I mean, clear enough, plain enough for the simple, deep enough, rich enough for, like I said, it's, it's inexhaustible. We're also saying that the Bible is clear in its essential matters. Walt Kaiser, in, uh, in the book Inerrancy, his chapter there called Legit- Legitimate Hermeneutics, he says that Scripture is, quote, any faithful, in, in any faithful translation is sufficiently perspicuous or clear to show us our sinfulness, the basic facts of the gospel, what we must do if we are to be a part of the family of God and how to live. So the, we're saying here that the things which are necessary for our salvation can be understood even by the uneducated. That the, the main things that we need to know, to believe, to do, to be faithful Christians can be clearly seen in the Bible. That the most important points in Scripture may not be understood perfectly, but they can be understood sufficiently. We're also saying that though there are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand, they are not impossible to understand, provided that a person make use of the ordinary means of studying and learning. And so we use the, the rights of language, the laws of language. We, we seek to understand the historical occasion, the context of what was written. We consider the form and the style or the genre of the writing. We examine the grammar. We, we examine the syntax. We look at the arrangements of, of words and phrases and, and that form sentences. We do all that. And by doing these things, we can know what Scripture means because this is the way God revealed himself. He revealed himself in those forms of writing. So again, this is not our weak attempt to describe God. This is the means that God decided to use to convey who he was. And he did not fail at that. He did not fail to do that. We don't act like the child that declares that a puzzle is unsolvable or impossible or to put together just because it may be too difficult for him. <laughs> right? so, like t- you take a six-year-old and you give him a thousand-piece puzzle and he just looks at it and goes, it's impossible. No, it's not. It might be right now for you, but it's not impossible. And sometimes I think we come to the scriptures with this sort of like, we just look at it and go, it's impossible. It's impossible. No, it's not. It's not. We are also saying that the, obscure, that, that the obscurity that a reader of the Bible may encounter in some portions of scripture is the result of the finiteness, the weakness, the limitations, and sinfulness of man. Wayne Grudem again says this, In a day when it is common for people to tell us how hard it is to interpret scripture rightly, we would do well to remember that not once in the Gospels do we ever hear Jesus saying anything like this. I see how your problem arose. The scriptures are not very clear on that subject. Instead, whether Jesus is speaking so, uh, to scholars or untrained common people, his responses always assume that the blame for misunderstanding any teaching of scripture is not to be placed on the scriptures themselves, but on those who misunderstand or fail to accept what is written. Again and again, Jesus answers questions with statements like, Have you not read? Have you never read in the scriptures? Or even, it's in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. you are wrong. This is in a quote. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We're also saying that there is a standard of Christian orthodoxy by which the church judges those. Uh, judges those who are to be included in or removed from the fellowship of the church, which simply means that 
that in the Christian life we do have an objective and authoritative body of teaching. The early church had this. The early church had this. Uh, in Acts, it's, it's described as the apostles' teaching. In Romans 6, is that form of teaching to which you were committed. In Romans 16, the teaching which you learned. In 2 John uh, verses 9 and 10, the teaching, this teaching, the teaching of Christ. In other words, we're not here. We don't come to church this morning to talk about my truth. We don't come to church this morning to talk about your truth. We come to church to learn about the faith. The faith which was once for for all handed down to the saints, Jude 3. It's this faith, the teaching, the testimony, the gospel, the standard, the treasure, the deposit, the word of truth, the sacred writings. That's the way that the Bible describes its own body of teaching and doctrine. All right, well, we're not going to get through We'll stop. Only a couple more left. Uh, we'll just pick up with, uh, we've got, I think, three other, uh, I think, statements that will help us to, to clarify this. Clarify this. So we're all about clear. Pers- we'll make this perspicuous. Uh, and then we'll also look at next, next time, again, what is at stake? What is, what is the consequence of, of not believing this? What are we saying What are we really saying if we say Scripture is not clear? What are we really saying if we say that we cannot believe these things with certainty? Because, again, that may sound humble to say, well, yeah, we we shouldn't be so confident. We We shouldn't hold these things so tightly. But what are we going to ultimately give give up by saying that? What what kind of ground are we we really conceding? What is the long-term consequence? And I'm saying, folks, if we give that up, that in a generation, and we've already seen this, really, but, I mean, just, just one generation away. I mean, to, for the, our kids and their kids, no more Bible. Why? I mean, if we, if we concede on some of these points. So what, what is at stake? And then I want to come back to, because we didn't really spend any time at all on it, but I want to come back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, and I want to do an exposition of that passage of Scripture and what it says about how God gave the Scriptures to us, this process of inspiration. Because one of the things I think we're saying when we deny the clarity of Scripture is that God failed. <laughs> I mean, we're saying, it's like on, and, and on one hand we're going, it's, it's, it's us, we don't know everything. It sounds, again, it sounds so humble, but I think what we're really saying is, God isn't wise enough or powerful enough to give us an inerrant and infallible and authoritative and sufficient and superior and clear word. It's really an attack on him. And so we'll come back and we'll walk through in detail that particular passage and uh, see how it contributes to this, this, uh, this topic. Okay? Thanks, guys, for your time.